Okay, this is Ask Me Anything 12. Thank you for all your questions. I, don't, I can't tell how many questions I have here, but I'm sure it's well over a thousand. I, I think I guess I'll, I'll clear out the questions after I do each AMA so that you guys have a chance to work with a fresh slate here. And I'll bounce around from popular to controversial to recent because I know there are probably some recent ones that are of interest but haven't been voted up yet. So once again, my philosophy here is to do this extemporaneously, like as though there were questions at the end of a live event. I have not previewed these. I'm just going to roll through them, and we'll see how far we get. Sam, who do you consider intellectually honest and fair in their criticisms of you? This question actually connects to many other questions I've been seeing here, and uh, many other accusations that I've seen online, which more or less have this shape. It's the idea that I claim to be continually confronted by intellectually dishonest people and their criticisms, and that I claim that I am misrepresented. Then the question is, what are the intellectually fair and honest criticisms of me? Why, why aren't there many of those that I'm referencing all the time so as to balance this picture? Well, the thing is, when a criticism of me is intellectually honest and fair and clearly correct, I absorb that blow fairly quickly. In fact, I often absorb it so quickly that no one ever really notices unless I point it out. I mean, a few times come to mind, which I, I mean, one, the last time it happened on this podcast, I did point it out, but these things blow by in an instant. So I had Neil Ferguson on the podcast. We were talking about Trump and, and how awful I thought he was. And recall that I have said more about Trump in a negative vein than many, many people. I have, must have spent 20 hours on this podcast railing about how unseemly it is that he's the president of the United States. So I have a lot of sunk cost here. This is a position I've taken as publicly as possible. But then Neil said, well, your criticism of Trump contains an implicit claim that we would be better off, the world would be better off, had Clinton won the presidency. So have you spent time actually thinking about that counterfactual? Would, in fact, we be better off? And I realized in an instant that I didn't spend any significant time thinking about that counterfactual. And then Neil had an argument for why he thought the world might, in fact, be worse off with Clinton. I'm not totally sure I agree with that argument, but it was interesting, but most important, it was true that I was not spending any time thinking about the counterfactual, thinking about what a Clinton presidency would be like. And that was immediately arresting to me, because I really should be complaining about Trump as much as I do, only on the assumption that it is in fact a bad thing, all things considered, that he's president. There were really only two options at the end of the day. And unless I think the other option would have been better, how much noise do I want to make about Trump in this case? So he didn't really shape it as a criticism, but just imagine what would have happened had I dug in there and for the rest of the podcast argued against the importance of counterfactuals or something, right? Well, then that would have been me defending this position and you would have seen me fighting back. What happened is I capitulated in an instant 
I would say, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, the truth is I haven't been thinking about that. That's actually changed my view a little bit. So it, it kind of blew by. I, I, I flagged it later just because I, you know, I, I didn't want you to miss it because that's a, it's a nice thing to happen on a podcast. But that's the kind of thing which had I defended it, it would have been me highlighting a disagreement, whereas the criticism came or the counter-argument came and it immediately knocked over the right dominoes in my brain and they all fell. And that's the way good arguments and compelling evidence should work when they hit your brain. There's another example, I think, which I've also flagged before, which came in my dialogue with Majid Nawaz in our book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, where at one point it became clear to me that he and I were thinking about the problem of Islamic fundamentalism differently. He had differentiated the problem into separate categories of problem. He would talk about jihadists and Islamists and conservative Muslims as though they were quite separate and as though, in many cases, conservative Muslims could be allies against jihadists and Islamists while nonetheless being conservative on other points and points significant enough to pose a problem for civil society, like honor killing, which is to say you can meet conservative Muslims who hate al-Qaeda just as much as Majid does and who don't want Islam being the official basis of their politics, so they disagree with Islamists, but they have truly odious attitudes toward homosexuality, say, or free speech. So they can be allies in one case, but they can be the problem themselves and others. So he, he differentiated that for me, and it, and it immediately exposed the fact that I had run all of that together as just the problem of Islamic fundamentalism. I had looked at each of these camps, insofar as I noticed the differences, they struck me as different gradations of belief. You know, the, the conservative Muslims were just less devout than the jihadists or the Islamists or less certain of their beliefs. And that's not necessarily true, and, and Majid convinced me that's not necessarily true. But all of that blew by in about 15 seconds. I could have dug in. I could have said, oh, well, no, no, it's just belief is belief is belief. All of these people are fundamentalists. The problem is just fundamentalism. Now let's debate this for the next four hours. But the moment I saw that he was right, I thought, okay, wow, that's interesting. Okay, and I think I said at some point, Oh, wow, that's very interesting. Okay, that's a very useful distinction. Okay, so that's how long it took for me to significantly modify how I was talking about Islam and how I had written about Islam in my first book, The End of Faith, and how I had spoken about it in upteen numbers of interviews and other forums. So it's not so much a criticism. I mean, it would have been a criticism had I dug in, if, if I had said, no, it's just all fundamentalism. Maja would have said, presumably, well, you don't really know what you're talking about. It's not all just fundamentalism. And we would have debated that. But the moment I see the daylight, the moment I see that someone is right and I'm wrong, I mean, as I've said before, I don't want to be wrong a moment longer than I have to be. It's almost like the experience of suddenly discovering that your hand is on something that's too hot. You pick up something on the stove and you realize suddenly it's too hot. Right? How long does it take you to drop it? That's how I feel in debates of this kind. And nothing is lost for me in recognizing that I'm wrong or that I have to modify part of my view in real time in conversation with somebody. 
the loss comes in not recognizing it, right? And in being wrong longer than I have to be. So the only reason why I haven't acknowledged that there's some great criticism of my view on free will, say, or my view on the moral landscape, or my view about the primacy of consciousness conceptually, or my concerns about the conflict between religion and science, or my special concern about Islam compared to most other religions. The only reason why those views are still intact for me is I have not seen criticism of my position that I have found compelling, right? And I've tried. I have solicited criticism on many of those points. I've even had a contest where I put up prize money for a criticism of my view of the moral landscape. But the moment I see something that actually suggests to me that I'm wrong, I'm very fast to modify my view in light of it. And if you don't think I am, well, then you just, you happen to think I'm wrong and I don't think I'm wrong, right? We have a difference of opinion or I'm not smart enough to see that I'm wrong on point X, Y, or Z. That's certainly possible. But again, I haven't been, I haven't seen the evidence of it. What I have seen are terrible arguments against many of my views. I've seen straw man arguments against many of my views. I've seen deliberate misrepresentations of many of my views and then arguments against those. And I've seen, in the best case, I've seen what I consider fundamentally different intuitions about how we have to ground our knowledge claims about the world. And I saw this most recently in my podcast with Sean Carroll on the topic of the moral landscape, and to some degree on, on free will, although, although there we're sort of just talking past each other. With respect to moral truth and what this concept of should does, I think some people thought he had a, a very strong argument against my formulation. Honestly, I didn't think so. I think we have a different intuition about what it means to say that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad and how that claim interacts with scientific truth claims and whether the concept of should is an additional thing that needs to be taken into account in morality. There are some brute intuitions here that I think people divide on. And th this happens elsewhere. This happens in the philosophy of mind. There are people who I'm now convinced, just don't see that the hard problem of consciousness is a problem, and it's on a root intuitive level. The claim that consciousness is conceptually irreducible, the claim that, that there is a, an explanatory gap between describing states of the physical world and what it's like to be us. Some people see that, and they, they can't overlook it, and some people don't see it, and it really is a an intuition on which people are divided. Anyway, so this is, this is a very long-winded way of saying that, yes, there are some totally legitimate instances of pushback against my views, and insofar as they're totally legitimate and they come directly to me, the transformation in the way I start speaking happens very, very quickly and may go unremarked by me or anyone else unless I happen to call attention to it. So I just gave you two examples. And I guess the next time I notice one of substance, I will point it out to you. What is the most consequential false belief you've ever held and how did you shake it? 
Well, it w- that would have to be the belief in the reality of an unchanging self that has to be protected and gratified at all times and is the basis of every conscious experience. That is something I, I certainly believed in at some point. I mean, it wasn't such a conceptual belief. It was a tacit sense that this is just the way subjectivity is organized. And I shook it as I've described in my book, Waking Up, and as I will describe at great length in my forthcoming app, through meditation, primarily. And I will try my best to help you shake it as well, if you suffer from that belief. In recent years, I've found that most of the ideas in my head are recycled opinions from whatever podcast I've heard recently. I spend a great deal of time consuming ideas, but almost no time producing or pursuing my own conjectures. Can you elaborate on your process for thinking through a topic, wrapping your head around an idea, and arriving at your own opinion? I uh, commend you in noticing this distinction. There definitely is a distinction between just consuming other people's ideas and thinking things through on your own. Now, they're related. The latter is certainly facilitated by reading good books and listening to good conversations. You need to take in the information in, in order to form an opinion about it. But there is an added step in arriving at your own views, and it's not often entirely passive. There's something about writing that forces that to happen. I forget who it was. Was it Francis Bacon? Some great early intellectual said that I write to discover what I think. I think it was Bacon. And that is a fairly accurate description of what it's like to write about ideas. You often find yourself discovering what you think in the process of writing. Writing is really a technology for thinking more carefully. And to some degree, speaking in public is as well. I mean, this is, you know, to speak the way I am now on a podcast is almost like the roughest draft of writing something. But it, it does take a little extra work than just listening to or reading what other people think. But that said, it's also not a bad thing to have in your head the well-considered opinions of informed people. I mean, that's most of anyone's knowledge on a given topic. Most of what we think is not a matter of us thinking through the problems for ourselves based on some raw data. We're dealing with the executive summaries on almost every topic. And that's just what it's like to be living a single human life where you can't do everything. But where you care, you know, it's worth making extra effort and figuring out what really makes sense to you. A question about workflow here, and then there was some further questions about whether it involves meditation or taking a walk, and what role does reading the work of others play in my process? Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time reading, obviously, and I read a lot for this podcast. I'm often reading the book of the person who's coming on the podcast next, and I often make the decision of who to invite on the podcast on the basis of just which book I want to read next. So, for instance, this week I've got Michael Pollan coming on the podcast. He's just written this big book on psychedelics and the new research that's coming on that topic. And I knew I wanted to read the book, so why not have him on the podcast? That's how I, in many cases, can justify reading 
a book like that. Yeah, my process, there's nothing esoteric about my process. Meditation is not a way that I consciously try to form new ideas or refine what I think about things, but it is a very common experience that while meditating, very clear thoughts about various topics I've been thinking about or new ideas spring to mind. And that can be useful and it can also be distracting. Next question. With respect to the social justice warrior phenomenon, I'm concerned that I am stuck listening to half the argument. You, Peterson, Rubin, Rogan, etc. You all sound cogent and persuasive to me, but could you speak to someone sensible who could offer a vaguely sensible SJW defense? I will try. I have someone who I've invited on the podcast on the Me Too topic that would fill that bill, but she's finishing up work on a book and doesn't want to do the podcast until she's finished. So yeah, there are more and less coherent defenses of what you might call a social justice warrior view. Certainly, everything I've said against Trump and against conservatism on many points, and all of the concerns I've voiced about wealth inequality, for instance, in various articles, you know, all of that is of a piece with what a sensible SJW might say on related topics. But the problem that I'm running into on the left, and again, it's not something I'd run into on the right, is that there are modes of attack that are obviously illegitimate, that are more or less omnipresent on the left. And, you know, one of them is what I've come to think of as leftist mind reading, you know, SJW telepathy, where the person criticizing me is criticizing me for thoughts that he is quite sure I'm thinking in the privacy of my own mind. He's a better judge of my assumptions and motives than I am. I claim to care about X, but he's going to tell me that I actually care about Y, right? That's not a move that gets made on the right very much. I can't remember the last time I've seen it. It is always happening on the left. It is just guaranteed to happen, right? So this mind-reading move is incredibly frustrating. It is unfalsifiable. It breaks the conversation. And the other crucial problem here is that the SJW phenomenon, as you put it, is founded on the claim that identity politics is a feature, not a bug, right? That these identities matter, really. That arguing on the basis of skin color or religion or gender or anything else is a durable, ethical, and political foundation for getting what we want out of this world and figuring out how to live the best lives possible. I am as convinced as I am of anything that it's not. I think it's a disaster. I think we have to outgrow it. The goal has to be to outgrow this thing. The goal has to be to purge this particular code from the hard drive of civilization. So that's a difference of opinion, right? I have an argument for why I think that's so. I think that this cannot be the end game that gets us to a thriving, pluralistic, cosmopolitan, spacefaring civilization. We're not going to get to Mars and live in happy colonies there, still caring about the color of our skin, 
You know, your white identity politics is idiotic, but all the other identity politics is also idiotic, though more understandable. So we have to outgrow this thing, and the SJW phenomenon is not acknowledging that. Its whole MO is to demand that these superficial differences among people be championed and respected and fetishized and totemized and responded to as though they were just stitched into the very fabric of reality. We have to get over this. So I don't know who represents the best SJW defense, but I'm happy to have recommendations. If you think of someone to have on, I'd be willing to do that. Anyway, this problem is not going away tomorrow. There will be many opportunities to find the best version of that position. Hi, Sam. You once wrote a fascinating article called Adventures in the Land of Illness about the seductive but toxic nature of complaining about personal health problems. It profoundly changed my thinking, and I would love to hear your thoughts on the value and limitations of keeping a, quote, stiff upper lip as a way to deal with the slings and arrows of life. You know, this is something that I don't have a clear answer on. I keep just being buffeted around by my own tendencies here. By tendency, I tend to complain about that sort of thing. And I notice I complain more, certainly most, when there's somebody to complain to, like my wife. If my wife is not around, well, then I'm just either talking to myself or not complaining. But if she's there to uh, lend a sympathetic ear, then I'll find myself saying something about an injury or an illness or whatever it is. And that motive seems more and more suspect to me. It has the function of ramifying the suffering and also spreading the pain to others in a way that seems counterproductive to me. I certainly admire people who have the opposite tendency and who don't complain and just get on with their lives. And you don't necessarily even know that they were suffering a migraine or whatever it was at the time you were with them. That's not how I'm wired, but I certainly want to be more like that than I am. And mindfulness is a very good tool to deal with the impulse to complain when it arises. In your interview with Russell Brand, you said that capitalism seems broken right now and that it promises certain things that it doesn't deliver. Could you go further into the problems you see with capitalism at this time? Capitalism in general, I'm convinced, is the best system we have, but it obviously has problems. There are things that the market can't incentivize and therefore problems that it produces that it can't correct for, and we need governments to do that. There are things we clearly want to spend a lot of money on or should want to spend a lot of money on that can't be inspired merely by everyone's profit motive. I would put uh, the next generation of antibiotics on that list. Antibiotics are drugs you take maybe once a decade, in the best case, and yet it costs at least a billion dollars to invent a new one, apparently. So drug companies don't focus on antibiotics. They focus on drugs that you are likely to take for the rest of your life every day. So that's a problem with incentives, and we need governments or philanthropic billionaires to correct for those problems. So that's one issue. 
The other issue is just wealth inequality. Thomas Piketty, the economist, wrote a much celebrated, probably not much read, gigantic book a few years ago that described how capitalism has built into it the fact that wealth inequality is destined to grow because the return on capital grows faster than the return on labor. I believe that's the bullet point summary of his thesis. And wealth inequality is a problem for a variety of reasons. It's a problem even when everything is getting better for everyone, because so much of our perception of our well-being is relative and comparative, explicitly so, so that if the lives of the 0.1% are getting astronomically better, while the lives of the 0.1% are getting a lot better, and the lives of the 1% and the 10% are just getting slightly better, and the lives of the 90% are getting just a touch better, that will seem like an intolerable circumstance, even while things are getting better for everybody. So given that, there's a certain degree of inequality that I think is psychologically and socially unsustainable, even when all boats are rising. So I think it's a problem that should be corrected for somehow, and I think even the most fortunate people in society should be able to recognize that. You just have to think about what sort of society you want to live in. Do you want to be surrounded by happy, creative, industrious people? If you are a billionaire owner of a technology company, do you want your customers to be just scraping by, or do you want your customers to be avidly using your product and not begrudging you your wealth? Right. Well, presumably it's the latter, and presumably you'd be willing to sacrifice something to make that be the case. But my experience is that many very wealthy people are living as though they want to live in a society where, you know, they're living in a compound behind razor wire and driving with an armed guard everywhere they go because life is so hard for everybody else. They're pretending not to care about those externalities. Whereas I think it's obvious that you want to be able to walk down the sidewalk not having to worry about crime, right? That's the society you want to live in. The way to achieve that society doesn't just entail better policing, it entails more wealth and opportunity for everyone. It entails a safety net that doesn't allow people to fall past some arbitrary bottom, and presumably that bottom will be moved higher and higher as we find more and more ways to create abundance in this world. And as you know, I think of progress in AI as being highly relevant here, and perfect progress in AI would render our current approach completely absurd, right? So if we could just pull wealth out of the ether, it's pretty obvious that we need to spread that wealth around, that we can't have the 15 people who got the right patents on that technology earning trillions of dollars and presiding over 70% unemployment in the U.S., say. At a certain point, there's a certain level of wealth inequality that would be totally unsustainable, and everyone would recognize it or would be forced to. So once we admit that, then we just have to decide where the line is. And I think we are 
on the wrong side of it at the moment. So capitalism needs to be jiggered to actually work. What are your views on psychoanalysis? Therapy helps a lot of people, yet some people, such as Popper and Chomsky, would criticize psychoanalysis for being unfalsifiable and conclude, therefore, that psychoanalysis is no more than pseudoscience. Do you agree with this notion? Well, psychoanalysis is a specifically Freudian approach to therapy. So psychotherapy is, is a broader category than psychoanalysis. I think psychotherapy can be very helpful to people. I think talking about your problems with some smart, well-informed person who has seen all of these problems before can be very helpful. And there are specific therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy that can be very helpful to people. Psychoanalysis per se, where you're thinking in terms of Freudian concepts of repression and the id and the superego and the rest of his speculative structuring of the unconscious, that I think is harder to defend. I mean, Freud was a brilliant writer, and I think that largely accounts for why he was as influential as he was. I think some of his ideas are quite nutty. But the notion of an unconscious life is not nutty. It's clear that much of the mind is, in fact, unconscious, and that we can be unconscious of our own motives at times for doing things. I think self-deception is a phenomenon that we can talk about fairly coherently, and therefore it's possible to have things in your life that you are not acknowledging that could suddenly erupt into plain view for you, and then you'll be left with this mystery as to why you didn't acknowledge them in the first place. Each of us is being ruled by committee rather than by a single coherent self that has all the information in view at all times. So there's something salvageable in Freud, and maybe even repression is a real capacity of the mind. That may be one thing that's salvageable. But much of what he described was unfalsifiable, or just frankly, falsified. And so there's a lot of pseudoscience in psychoanalysis as well, and mythology. And the same could be said of any of those guys. Carl Jung certainly suffers by comparison with rigorous science. Yeah, I would say that I don't spend a lot of time thinking through that particular lens. But as to the merits of going into therapy with a skilled therapist, that can be quite useful. I just wouldn't think that psychoanalysis is likely the right approach. What do you think is the best version of the argument that everyone engages in tribalism, wittingly or unwittingly? What would steel manning that argument sound like? I think this could be a quite superficial, though accurate, claim about all of us. If what you mean is we all have various games we play that entail taking a side, right? And some of this is just for fun. You know, you're a Yankee fan or you're an Arsenal fan, and you can spend some significant time in your life taking that fandom seriously, which is to say you really care about the outcomes of various games. Your emotions get hooked by good and bad outcomes, and 
you feel a certain way about people who take the other side of those contests, right? So that's tribalism as entertainment, really. And then people take it too far. People become fanatics there, right? So let's say you're, you never become a fanatic, but you play at tribalism with respect to being a sports fan. Okay, well, people do that. Fine. And then it's clear that all of us are more or less centered in certain cultures and subgroups, where it's true to say we have more or less in common with certain people. Now, what makes this claim of tribalism not run through when applied to me in these various debates that I've been in is that if I'm in a tribe, the people who are criticizing me, the people who I'm fighting with, are in the same tribe I am. This is an intra-tribal skirmish, right? Ezra Klein and I are in the same tribe. Robert Wright and I are in the same tribe. If that's a tribe, if it's you know, the people who are left of center, who are concerned about science and political equality, people who think racism is a bad thing, there are people who don't think racism is a bad thing, right? They're in a different tribe. If you call everything a tribe, the word loses its meaning. This is the same thing that gets done with atheism, where you know, atheism is described as a religion or a faith. They have the faith that there is no God. Or the atheists are just as fundamentalist as the fundamentalists they criticize. That doesn't run through. Atheism is not a religion. The fundamentals of atheism are not a dogmatic belief in anything. The fundamentals are skepticism and common sense and a willingness to live with uncertainty in the absence of certainty, a willingness to just await the data from science. That's what gets you atheism. To call that a religion is just to misuse the word, right? To call that a species of fundamentalism is to misuse the word. To call someone, in my case, who thinks tribalism has to be outgrown, who thinks identity politics is a disaster, who would never take the side of a white guy or a Jewish guy or a fellow atheist or a fellow heterosexual or a fellow male, okay, just to check all the boxes in my superficial identities, who would never take the side of such a person if he thought he was wrong out of group loyalty, which is what tribalism entails in other cases. To call that tribalism is just to make a mockery of the word. There is no tribe of people who are undercutting tribalism. Here are some of the egregious signatures of tribalism. Tribalism shows itself when members of the tribe support one another even when they're obviously wrong, even when they're obviously being dishonest, even when the facts are against them, right? They're locking arms because they're the same tribe. People who are focused on honesty and accuracy and facts are tending not to do that. That's one reason why this is asymmetric warfare. Take an example of tribalism, right, is when, you know, a white jury acquits a white man because he's white or convicts a black man because he's black, where the color of the person's skin was irrelevant to their deliberations. That's tribalism. The reasonable person who is allergic to tribalism wants consistent evaluations of evidence to trump feelings of in-group solidarity in cases like that. To be that sort of person, 
the person who's looking for a universalist conception of reason to prevail and for in-group solidarity to be irrelevant in cases like that, to call that yet another tribe is idiotic. And that's what some people seem to be doing. So, yes, we can all be contaminated by a sense of the familiar, right? When we look at other cultures deeply unfamiliar to us, that unfamiliarity can be scary in certain cases. The reality is is that, speaking personally, I am a xenophile where the differences between cultures are not morally relevant. As I've said before, I love the food and the music and the architecture and the difference in Middle Eastern culture or Indian culture or East Asian culture. Those differences make the world a more interesting place. And I want all of those differences imported into my own society. As I've said, if you tell me that an Indian family just immigrated into my community and is going to open a great Indian restaurant walking distance from my house, that is all good news. It only becomes bad news when you tell me they believe that anyone who's not a Brahmin is subhuman or they believe that a widow should be hurled on the funeral pyre of her dead husband in this ancient act of sati. If they believe something crazy like that, well then, yeah, then their difference begins to seem nefarious because it should seem nefarious. It is nefarious. These are ideas from a different age of the earth that we have to outgrow. But the other differences culturally are beautiful and fun. So yeah, you might be part of a tribe or at least xenophobic, if you recoil from any difference. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like the food. I don't like people speaking English with an accent, right? If that's you, then yeah, maybe you're uncomfortable with other cultures for reasons that you should inspect. Maybe that you can be charged with some sort of tribalism there. But you don't have to be part of a tribe to see what's wrong with sati. Burning a woman alive just because her husband died? If you're going to call opposition to that tribalism, you're a moral lunatic. And that's what's happening for the most part, as far as I can tell, as this word is being bandied about. I'm spending virtually all my time focusing on ideas and their consequences. And that doesn't make me part of any tribe. And if someone who is in my, quote, tribe, which is to say someone who has all of the same cultural reference points as I have, someone who looks like me and sounds like me and went to the same schools and likes the same brand of cereal, someone with whom you could presume I'm most at home, if that person has bad ideas, I aspire in every case to be the kind of person who will notice that and care about that and not support their bad ideas or disregard their bad ideas just because we look and sound similar. So that's how I think it breaks down. And again, we have to outgrow this notion that it's difficult, much less impossible, to think clearly about the nature of reality because your skin looks a certain way, or you were born in a certain place, or your parents had a certain religion. I am a heart surgeon and an atheist. I am frequently asked by my patients to pray with them before a major operation. 
This is not helpful and may actually be harmful. See reference below. But I find it challenging to decline to pray with them in any honest, comforting, helpful, and meaningful way. Any advice on how a surgeon or any other professional might best respond in similar circumstances? I think the important thing here is to be as supportive and as comforting as possible without lying about anything. I personally wouldn't find it difficult to join them in whatever moment of silence or prayer they wanted to engage. It would just be easy to hope for the same good outcome that they hope for. So I don't see why you couldn't express your support of them by taking a moment to join them in that circumstance. You certainly wouldn't have to claim to believe in God or to believe that prayer in a propitiatory sense actually works. But what does work is support and compassion. And so I think you could express that in a way that wouldn't be offensive and wouldn't be dishonest. I mean, obviously, there are kinds of questions that could come from people that might be inconvenient. You know, if they ask you what you think about God and what you think happens after death, I'm sure there can be awkward conversations. But just being asked to join them in prayer, I personally wouldn't find that difficult. And the study you reference is one in which patients who were told that people were praying for them did a little worse in their recovery. The way I interpret that is that it could just be slightly alarming to be told that everyone's praying for you. It could make you sense that your situation is in fact graver than you thought it was. So yeah, you don't have to do that. I don't think you necessarily fall into the downside parameters of that study if you just support your patients when they ask for it in that way. What are your opinions on Alan Watts? Well, I never met Watts. He was a little before my time. I knew many people who did know him. So what I've gleaned from them, and just my sense of having read his stuff and listened to many hours of him speaking, is that he was a brilliant and very fun communicator of Eastern wisdom. He was not the most careful scholar, and he was not the most experienced meditator or practitioner of these ideas. So I think he clearly had some problems with alcohol. He had a somewhat chaotic life. I don't know how many marriages he had, but I think he got into a place where he was just writing books, having to service all of these child support debts. I think he had seven children, but he was just a wonderful communicator of these ideas and a beautiful storyteller. And so very fun to listen to. I highly recommend it, but I don't consider him to have been the greatest realizer of the fruit of these ideas. But I hope that doesn't sound like more of a dig than in fact it is. I thought he was great. Some more questions about my decision not to publish the audio of live events. Many of these questions seem to be focused on the ones I've got coming up with Jordan Peterson. I don't think I'm going to have the rights to the audio for those events. So those events will not be published, I think, in any form, certainly in advance of any future events I have with Jordan. So I think they'll be recorded. Maybe they'll see the light of day at some point. I think largely Pangburn's concerned about ticket sales for understandable reasons. He's taken out some very large venues in London and Dublin, so 
to release the Vancouver audio before those events happen. I could understand why he would be skittish about doing that. So I don't know when or if that video or audio will see the light of day. If I get it, I will give it to you here on my website, but I can't make any guarantees there. As far as other events that I record, again, my view here is that I should give them to subscribers so that you have a choice to listen or not, but I shouldn't put them out on the main podcast feed. I think I have a few more that I need to release because I had promised the participants that they would be on the main podcast when they agreed to do those events, but going forward, I think all event audio will be for subscribers only. But as your subscriber, that should be fine with you. Which cognitive biases affect you the most? Well, I don't know that I would know, but I would guess it's some version of the availability heuristic. It's easy to call to mind certain highly charged examples or stories which change your perception of the risk of various things. You hear about a plane crash, say, or a crime or some natural disaster, and then your sense of the odds of that happening to you changes significantly, whereas you actually have no new information about the odds. It's just you have a, an alarming story that's now in your head. So I noticed that effect. I'm pretty diligent about canceling it when I notice it. So to take an example like anxiety with respect to flying on a plane, at a certain point, you know, growing up, I always felt nervous getting on an airplane, having seen the evidence of plane crashes in news stories and in films. So getting on a plane always seemed more dangerous to me than getting in a car. At a certain point, when I thought clearly enough about the statistics, I just decided that was crazy, right? Whenever I see that come up, whenever I see the sense that getting on a plane is potentially dangerous emerge in my mind. And it can get provoked when I hear a story as recently happened that, you know, some poor woman got sucked out the window of a plane that got breached with an engine explosion. I think she was the first death in U.S. commercial aviation in a decade, if I'm not mistaken. And you hear a story like that and you imagine how terrifying that was for the people on the plane and you put yourself in that situation as an imaginative exercise, well, then, yeah, you can begin to feel that flying is dangerous. But I'm convinced that is a delusion. Flying is, in fact, far safer than many of the things we do about which we have no similar moments of trepidation. You know, like if you go skiing, say, for fun, right, you're not presumably thinking about all of the brain damage being acquired by your fellow skiers who are falling and hitting their head on ice or running to trees, right? I mean, this is not something that is dogging you every mile on the slopes. Otherwise, you'd find it intolerable to do it. But skiing is just far more dangerous than flying. And so it is with driving and many other things we do. But I think you can just decide that that cognitive bias is in fact just that, a bias, and cancel it when you see it operating. But no doubt there are many cases where I don't see it operating. Anyway, that would be the one that I would imagine works the most in the background for me. 
I would think confirmation bias is also pretty frequent. Looking for reasons why you're right rather than looking for reasons why you're wrong is a bad habit, but it's a habit that we can correct for. And to be interested in counterarguments, there's a kind of dispositional tendency here that can be trained into you, which I think is a matter of education. There are people who don't like to hear provocative ideas that they find counterintuitive or that run against the grain of their beliefs. There are people who find that to be unpleasant, right, rather than interesting or rather than exciting, right? Now, you can become the kind of person who gets excited by what is advertised as a strong counterargument against what you currently believe. It's the kind of thing that gets drummed into you a little bit in philosophy class, right? Like someone says, well, let me tell you why abortion is always wrong. Someone starts the conversation with that attitude. In me, you know, so I'm pro-choice, you know, that's certainly my political position. But if somebody says, well, listen, let me just tell you why abortion is always wrong, it's always akin to murder, here you go, right? If someone confronts me with that promise, my attitude is pure interest, pure excitement. Okay, let's hear it. I think there are other people for whom their amygdalas begin to fire, and they think, now I'm in the presence of a bad person, right? Or I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to find some way to disagree with it, right? Some way not to let this in, no matter how good these points are. That's a different attitude toward knowledge and morality and argumentation. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in this area. I certainly can be confounded by confirmation bias and many other biases, named and unnamed. But I do find the prospect of being proven wrong about something important very interesting and exciting. So when I had David Deutsch on the podcast, and we were talking about my book, The Moral Landscape, I knew he had some misgivings about my thesis. I think we agreed about other fundamental things, but we were coming at it in a different way. There are various points in the conversation, at least one point I remember, where he said, okay, well, let me tell you why everything you just said is wrong. I loved that, right? I mean, you can listen to that in the podcast. Now, what he eventually said didn't totally undercut my thesis. Largely, this was a matter of translating how he was thinking about things into how I was thinking about things and back again. We had some different assumptions with respect to how one thinks about knowledge. So we agreed more than we disagreed there. But to give you my experience in real time here is just I'm talking to someone who I greatly admire, who I know is extremely intelligent, who has a significantly different skill set than I do. He's got a highly quantitative, physics-based view of the world, and yet there's massive overlap between us with respect to what we know scientifically and philosophically. So when he leads with, okay, let me just tell you why that's completely wrong, right? And whatever that was, it was me having stated you know, one of my cherished opinions. That's just pure pleasure in my brain at that moment. Okay, I'm only now becoming dimly aware that most people aren't like that, right? Most people just get struck by fear or they feel insulted. Here's a cognitive bias that 
affects me. I am very slow to understand, and I'm sure I don't completely understand even now how different people are with respect to this variable. I'm always assuming by default that I'm dealing with someone much more like me than in fact I'm likely to be on this particular point. It actually even happened with in my conversation with Ezra Klein. I don't think I noticed this until after the conversation was over and I heard the audio, but I noticed that whenever I tried to interrupt him and say, wait, 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 okay, that's a misunderstanding, he took that as a kind of insult, right? He took that as either a cynical attempt on my part to derail him, or he took it as an example of me saying you're stupid. Otherwise, I can't process his reaction. What it actually was on my part was me trying to spare him the needless effort of going down some path that was irrelevant, where I had already acknowledged that you know, all the points he's going to make here are points I've already acknowledged and will acknowledge in two seconds. And I was trying to spare all of you guys the pain of hearing us talk past one another. In any case, he took that to be gamesmanship or insult when I say, no, 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 no that, that's a misunderstanding. If someone interrupts me and says, no, no, you're actually misunderstanding, that provokes pure interest in me. Very different. Anyway, I will be the first to admit that I have a lot to learn about how other people think and operate. If at all possible, would you get someone from the Southern Poverty Law Center to come on the podcast to explain why they've taken a stance against you, Charles Murray, Majid Nawaz, Nayan Hirsi Well, honestly, I think it would be a waste of time. I don't think they would do it, because on their account, I'm a racist recruiter for the alt-right. But these are just not honest people. These are people who never admit errors until you sue them. And even then, they have not yet admitted the error they made with respect to Majid Nayan. They've just taken the page down in anticipation of this lawsuit. It's a very cynical operation at this point. And again, I know what I would confront there. I would confront more far-left telepathy, right? They would be telling me what I'm really thinking and why I'm really saying what I'm saying and pretend to know my mind better than I do. It's impossible to exaggerate how ubiquitous this mode of non-argumentation is. It's totally deranging to conversation. That's not to say that you can never form an opinion about the motivations of other people. And obviously we do that all the time. But they should be coherent, right? I mean, when I'm spending time and moral capital supporting Ayan Hirsi Ali, okay, racism is unlikely to be my organizing principle. White supremacy is unlikely to be my organizing principle. And when I have an account of my organizing principle that I've written whole books to defend and concerns about race have nothing to do with it, and you're still going to imagine that you're drilling down into my psyche from your perch in Alabama and discovering my racism, this is not something I can profitably interact with. What is the most lowbrow thing you do on a regular basis? Do you go to monster truck rallies on the weekend? A little WWF? Maybe you're an avid watcher of The Bachelorette? 
Well, I'm not quite as lowbrow as that, but uh, I watch the UFC from time to time. I don't watch all of them, but the UFC is the ultimate fighting championship for those of you who aren't into MMA, mixed martial arts. So yeah, I am a fan of MMA. That's pretty lowbrow from many people's point of view. And uh, what else here? Though I hadn't played video games for about 30 years or so, I just started playing Overwatch with my nine-year-old daughter, which is tremendous fun, especially to be trash-talked by one's nine-year-old daughter. So I don't know if that's lowbrow or not, but it is fun. In his talk with Matt Dillahunty, Jordan Peterson claimed that the new atheists, including you, think of religion as 13-year-olds do and don't deal with the biggest thinkers like Jung, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, etc. What is your answer? I actually haven't seen that talk yet, so I'll just take this on the assumption that it's true. But he's right. I, I don't deal with Jung much at all. I don't deal with Dostoevsky at all. I don't deal with Nietzsche much. But that's not the same thing as not having read these guys. If the assumption is I haven't read them and I'm unfamiliar with them and I've got this enormous blind spot, I'm just unaware of their brilliance and relevance, that's not true. Rather, I've judged them to be irrelevant to this particular conversation. These are not people who are thinking deeply about the nature of reality. Anyway, Jordan and I, I'm sure, will get into that when we meet on stage. Bunch of questions here about the intellectual dark web in response to that article from Barry Weiss in the New York Times. So generally, what do I think about the intellectual dark web and am I happy to be a part of it? All of that. Well, just to be clear, I think I've said this before, I view this notion of the intellectual dark web as a tongue-in-cheek analogy that shouldn't be taken too seriously. But let me just talk about the genesis here. This is a phrase that Eric Weinstein used on one of my podcasts. Then I think he used it a second time at the event I did with him and Ben Shapiro in San Francisco, which was released on this podcast as well. And I used the phrase intellectual dark web in the title of that podcast. Now, I, I thought about that for no more than 30 seconds. That was not a deep motive there. I just thought it was an amusing phrase. Again, it is kind of tongue-in-cheek. The analogy, though, was appropriate in that the dark web is this part of the internet that is not showing up in your Google search and that you need kind of a separate browser to access. I've actually never gone on the dark web. I think it's the Tor browser that gets you there. So there's this domain of internet activity that the mainstream internet user knows virtually nothing about. And that analogy seemed apropos at the time, because what's happening is that there's a very rich, long-form conversation occurring on platforms like this to comparatively large audiences that the mainstream media knows very little about. The mainstream media, for the most part, is unaware that you know Joe Rogan, for instance, who was also inducted into this intellectual dark web in that article. The mainstream media doesn't know that he has a larger audience than most of the most popular shows on television. That would be news still to many people in the media. 
So Joe can have a three-hour conversation with whoever he wants rather than a five-minute interview on CNN to a much larger audience than CNN ever gets. Right? So that's interesting, and it's changing how ideas spread. And so that was what Eric was calling out. What most of the people who were named in that article have in common is not their beliefs and opinions in general, but it's their orientation with respect to the trends on the far left that are closing down conversation, the deplatforming, the political correctness, the judging that certain topics are taboo. All of that is something that everyone in the dark web has spent a fair amount of time criticizing and pushing back against. But if you're going to talk about me and Jordan Peterson in the same sentence, or me and Ben Shapiro in the same sentence, you have to acknowledge that we disagree about almost everything. So the intellectual dark web does not name a unified group, much less a tribe, in any normal sense. If we have anything in common, it is a willingness to have civil conversations about polarizing and important topics. But anyway, the phrase is something that I still view as tongue-in-cheek, somewhat like the Four Horsemen, right? That was Hitch, Dawkins, Dennett, and I were dubbed the Four Horsemen for the purposes of that video, and then that sort of stuck. The New Atheists phrase was, so we didn't apply that to ourselves, but that stuck for quite some time. As you know, I have misgivings around even using the term atheist. So I don't take any of this stuff very seriously, for better or worse. Do you have an idea when your meditation app will be released? Yes, I do have an idea. At the time I'm recording this, I believe I am less than a week away from releasing a new iOS build, a totally new, totally revamped iOS build that will be beta tested. So if you've been enrolled in the iOS beta for the earlier app, you should look for a new version coming your way soon. And I don't think that beta test will take very long. I think an Android test will be coming soon after, maybe as soon as a month after. I'm expecting the app to be released this summer. I think that is a reasonable expectation at this point. And much of the rest of this year, for me, will be absorbed in producing content for the app. So I'm very excited about this. This is allowing me to turn my attention to topics that are much more at the core of my interest than many that have absorbed my attention of late. And frankly, it's been too long in coming, that turn for me. So I'll be thinking about consciousness and well-being and ethical insight and the examined life much more than I have been in recent months. Another question on SJWs. You often speak of social justice warriors and the regressive left with a fair amount of opprobrium. I share your concerns, but I'm also worried that you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater. What social justice activism do you participate in or support? Well, again, this is something I touched in my answer to the question on capitalism. I believe that wealth inequality is a huge issue 
I don't think we will ever totally get rid of it. I don't think that's the goal. But it's clear that there's a certain degree of wealth inequality that is unsustainable and should be, if for no other reason but you know, pure self-preservation, it should be something that we respond to and seek to ameliorate. But you know, more deeply, I just think it's ethically unsustainable and unjustifiable. And this is true within our own societies, and it's certainly true between the developed and developing world. It's just that the difference between being lucky and unlucky on planet Earth at this moment is so stark that we should all want to sacrifice something to correct for it. And again, we, we, we don't want socialism, we don't want a system that disincentivizes human ingenuity and productivity. I'm not saying we should throw capitalism out, but we have to have a common vision of what human flourishing will entail on a global scale and seek to realize it. And each of us trying to get as much as we can by our own private efforts is not the master variable that will realize it. It'll realize some things. It'll get Steve Jobs to start Apple Computer, but it won't get us everything. So I think that is a concern that I share with the left. And differences in class and economic opportunity and the educational aspects of that, that subsumes much of what people who are pursuing identity politics care about. Many of our concerns about racial inequality can be translated into concerns about class inequality and address the same social wrongs, in many cases more accurately and more fairly. So, for instance, if a college is going to pursue affirmative action, I would be much more comfortable with affirmative action with respect to economics than with respect to race, right? That makes much more intuitive sense to me at this point. Again, I think of myself as being left of center on virtually every relevant question. And that's why I find it so disorienting and lacerating to deal with the dishonest character assassination I so frequently deal with on the left, and which, strangely, I almost never encounter on the right, no matter how hard-hitting the criticism. I have to go so far right, just into the darkest wilderness of conspiracy thinking, to get an analogously dishonest attack on me of the sort I get from people like Robert Wright or Ezra Klein. I have to go to the part of the right where white supremacists are alleging that I'm part of some Jewish globalist conspiracy to say what I say about religion, say, or to support someone like Majid, right, who's really a closet jihadist. That's how far I have to go to get something as dishonest as what I routinely get on the left. And that's why you hear so much more about the problems of the left from people like me. There is a massive asymmetry. I mean, we're now talking about the people who are publishing mainstream magazines and running universities. We're not talking about neo-Nazi fringe groups. The problem feels much more pressing. 
After re-listening to the Charles Murray podcast, I'm left hoping that you'll invite another guest on who can talk about universal basic income. Actually, that's coming. There's a person who is running for president. He's declared his candidacy for 2020. That's Andrew Yang. I believe his website is andrewyang2020.com. And he has an interesting book out, which is solely on this point. Seems to me his campaign platform will be almost entirely focused on the need for UBI. So anyway, he's, he's agreed to come on the podcast. I think it's going to be about a month before I have him on, but that podcast is coming your way. I think we will talk about UBI the whole time. One of the controversial questions here is, do you believe that you are overly sensitive to criticism? No, but I believe that, again, this is why it's such an asymmetric situation. I believe that responding to criticism makes one seem petty. I see this word petty often used when I am responding to an overt misrepresentation of my views that's consequential online. Why are you so petty to be responding to this? I don't view it as petty at all, but I now understand that defending yourself always looks bad to some significant number of people, no matter how warranted it is. And so now I'm deciding to do it less and less and maybe not at all. I'm answering these questions here because these are the questions that have been voted up by all of you. But now I realize that there's just no way to control this. It's uncontrollable. There's no path open to me that avoids this experience. So all I can do is use my time in a way that is ethical and interesting. And what other people do with that is totally outside my control. But I think I, I have to secure this insight that I really can't control the response. That's actually liberating. I should have had that insight years ago. But now that I have, I'm going to act on it. So, no, I don't believe that I'm overly sensitive to criticism because I do actually think that the damaging misrepresentations of my views have consequences in the real world that any person who cares about consequences would care about. I mean, this actually goes to the level of your kids maybe not getting into school because of what a Google search returns on you. It really is at that level in my life. But again, all I can control is what I do and why I do it. Why doesn't the argument for free will being an illusion also apply to consciousness? So if, if free will can be an illusion, why can't consciousness be an illusion? Well, it's an interesting question. Let me see if I can give you a clear answer here. Then the answer is truly obvious to me from a first-person experiential perspective. I'm not sure how I can make it logically obvious to you. So consciousness as a concept, there are different ways to use this term, but I'm convinced that the legitimate way to use it and the only way I use it is to refer to the fact that in Nagel's terms, there's something that it's like to be you. You are having an experience. Something seems to be happening, right? Whatever the real status of all of that is, I mean, you could be in a simulation now, you could be a brain in a vat, you could be dreaming, you could be wrong about everything, but the lights are on 
and revealing some circumstance, whatever that happens to be. That is the fact of consciousness. And in my view, that is the one thing that it's impossible to be confused about. It is impossible to be confused that something seems to be happening. There's just simply no place to stand where I can second guess that. Any version of doubt about that is just more evidence of consciousness. This, whatever it is, we're not presuming to understand anything. We're not presuming that we're right about anything. We're just confronted by this circumstance, whatever it is. We can imagine we don't even have names for the different senses. We haven't differentiated seeing from hearing, from smelling, from tasting, from touching. We don't know we're human yet. We don't know that we have eyes. We certainly don't know that we have a brain. Yet something is appearing. Okay, there's a seeming circumstance. That's consciousness. Now, free will is the sense, again, there's many ways people use this phrase. Some people, I would argue, just change the subject, like Dan Dennett and the other compatibilists, and start talking about a free will that is not the free will that people are claiming, for the most part, psychologically. But the folk psychological notion, which is to say the common notion of free will, is the feeling, which in the philosophical literature is called libertarian free will, the feeling that one could have done otherwise, right? One could, a moment ago, have said something different or done something different than what one, in fact, did say or do. Okay, that is an illusion, right? There's no physics of things that makes sense of that claim. If you're going to add randomness there, that doesn't give you free will. It just gives you random governance of your behavior and your thoughts and your intentions. So, could have done otherwise is an illusion. If you rewind the movie of your life again and again, the last scene is going to play out exactly as it did. So the concepts have a very different status. Even worse for the concept of free will, I find that if you look closely enough at your experience subjectively, introspectively, if you turn consciousness upon the evidence of free will, you don't find it. It evaporates. The sense that you could have done otherwise evaporates. The sense that there's an agent who can decide to do one thing or the other evaporates. And there is just the mere arising of thoughts and intentions and subsequent actions in consciousness. They're getting pushed into view by you know not what subjectively, but undoubtedly it's underlying neurology and other physical facts about you. All of these things are simply emerging, and you don't know what you will think next until you think it. You don't know what you will intend. You don't know how strong the intention will be. You don't know that you'll resist it, and if you resist it, how much, before any of those things happen. And so it's all just playing out in a way that is completely compatible with the truth of determinism. And many people worry that there's some downside to realizing that. I don't believe there is. In fact, it seems like it's all upside to me. But in any case, that's why these 
two concepts are very different and why I can say that free will is an illusion and consciousness is the one thing that cannot be. Some recent questions here. What's your take on enlightenment? I take it there, the concept is the Eastern contemplative one, not the Western historical intellectual one. So if you're asking about enlightenment from the side of being a meditator or a yogi, I think it is a real phenomenon. I think it's possible to stabilize what many of us clearly experience in various meditative states, or even just as a matter of our day-to-day capacity in being mindful. Some of the time, I think it's possible to experience that all of the time. I don't see why it wouldn't be. It's certainly possible to experience it none of the time, and then to learn to experience it some of the time, and then more and more of the time, and then to be in circumstances like on retreat where it's happening much more of the time. I don't see why a person couldn't achieve that permanently, because it really is just a matter of certain features of consciousness becoming more and more obvious, and ultimately so obvious that they can't be overlooked, or at least they can't be overlooked in a way that would be consequential. So I think enlightenment is real. Again, I'll talk about this much more in my app, but what it entails at a minimum is just not being taken in by the illusion of the self. And by self, I mean the interior self, the subject riding around in one's head. And what that means is to not be identified with thought, to not mistake the arising of the next thought to be the birth of an agent, the birth of a self in that moment, for it to not feel like I or me, but just for it to be recognized as an appearance in consciousness. There's this image in Tibetan Buddhism of what enlightenment is like, this final stage. Thoughts are like thieves entering an empty house. It's not about getting rid of thoughts. It's about having a mind wherein their appearance doesn't have the usual implication. Thieves entering an empty house. There's nothing for them to steal. And I think it is quite possible to have a mind where even negative thoughts have no psychological implication. There's actually a related question here. In my experience, thinking too much is not conducive to contentment. Forgetting or neglect of thought seems much more conducive to a feeling of contentment. At the same time, I'm an intellectual who seeks knowledge in all kinds of fields. How do you negotiate between the urge to know and understand and the urge to just be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Again, this is the kind of thing that I'll deal with most directly in my app. But it is true that most thought is wasted. I would say 99% of my thinking is to no good purpose, and that I'd be much happier if I were just relinquishing each of those thoughts as they arose rather than following them. And so for me, yes, more and more just being rather than thinking is the right strategy for living a happy life. But as you 
acknowledge there are many things that one can only do by thinking. Learning new things is a matter of imbibing the thoughts of others or thinking through their implications once you've done that. So it's not that thinking goes away or isn't relevant, but just pay attention to yourself. Just as you drive or run errands or go about your day, how much of your thinking is necessary? How much of your thinking on your way from point A to point B in your life is actually leading to anything that is happiness-producing or is a matter of learning anything new or having great ideas? In my experience, very little of it is. It's just this detritus cast off by the brain. And if it were coming to you from another person, you would recognize that it was incredibly boring and repetitive. But magically, because it seems to be coming from your own voice in your head, you don't recognize it as such. So for me, more and more, remaining mindful of that, and as you put it, just being, that is certainly the better strategy for contentment. How do you meditate with tinnitus? Mine is driving me crazy. Yeah, well, I feel for you. It can be a problem. It's not a problem in the sense that one can't have equanimity around the sound. It is just a sound. So whatever your tinnitus is, however loud it is, you can just surrender and listen to it. And if you notice the reaction to it getting kindled, whether it's resistance or fear or annoyance, you just become mindful of that and just let that dissipate. And you just keep dropping back into merely being aware of it. But I must say, it can be a challenge for me in that I can occasionally worry that being aware of it is tantamount to upregulating it. I worry that if you are at all led to focus on the sound, you can be actually dialing it up. I don't have any evidence for that but it doesn't seem to me to be a crazy concern. So if, if you find that your tinnitus is becoming a real focus and seems to be getting louder by virtue of you meditating, rather than you just noticing it more because you're now paying attention to your experience, I would recommend that you add some ambient noise so that you, you meditate outside where there are many other things to listen to, or you even put on music. It could be music without vocals, or it could be music where there's the vocals are in another language. I wouldn't use music where you're actually aware of the meaning of the lyric or processing that meaning. But there's nothing wrong with having sound that you can be aware of to have that mask the tinnitus. That's a strategy I've used from time to time. It can be a problem, but again, sound in general shouldn't be viewed as a distraction. It can be a totally appropriate, in fact, an especially good object of meditation. Okay, I think this is the last one here. What are your thoughts on Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory as a possible explanation for human consciousness? Well, so briefly, Terence, I don't think this is original with Terence. I think he got this from someone else, but he certainly promoted it. He speculated that our distant ancestors, pre-linguistic hominids, began eating psilocybin mushrooms, and that this kind of plunge into pharmacopoeia accounts for the 
birth of language in Homo sapiens. I have never taken that especially seriously. I'm not aware that he or anyone else has made a coherent case for why eating mushrooms and having whatever experiences were available would have selected for anything on the level of genetic mutations, much less encouraged specific mutations relevant to language. So I don't see it as a theory. There's no question our ancestors used magic mushrooms and other psychedelics at various times. And the use of psychedelics is a virtual cultural universal. But as for it accounting for the origin of language or the origin of anything else biologically, I have never seen an argument for that. If there is one, please bring it to my attention. Okay. Well, it's been a long AMA. I hope uh, you found it useful. I think I'll be doing these somewhat more frequently. And we'll be bringing on different functionality onto the website. In addition to the AMA section, there's going to be a section where you can recommend guests and vote on guests. So that should be interesting. Once again, if there's anything you want to see on the website, and once my app is out, this is true of that, if there are functions you think of that you want, please bring those to our attention at info at samharris.org. We've taken much of your advice, and the implementation of that is, in some cases, still in the works. We'll be getting you all of the subscriber-only content, in addition to the AMAs, the other event audio, and bonus questions from guests. We'll make sure all of that is in the RSS and can be listened to on podcast players. That's coming soon. Sorry for the delay there. But yeah, please feel free to give feedback with respect to the functionality of the website. And uh, the app is coming very soon, I promise. Once again, thank you for your support. You are making all of this possible, and I will see you back on the podcast soon.